welcome to another episode of our NCLEX review series. In this podcast, we continue to bring you valuable materials to help you prepare for your exam. Enjoy. Diabetes, diabetes mellitus is a metabolism disorder in which the blood glucose levels are too, what? Too high. Remember with diabetes, what does the word diabetes mean? It means somebody who's putting out a lot of urine, okay? And the word that follows the, the diabetes tells you what that urine looks like. So it is diabetes mellitus. Mellitus means sweet tasting. This is a person that's putting out a lot of sweet urine. Let's you know that there's something wrong with their blood glucose levels. All right. There are two types of diabetes mellitus. There is type 1 and type 2. Let's just fill in these boxes. The age for type 1 that they usually get it is a child. The age for type 2 is an adult. All right. Um, is the body producing insulin in type 1? No insulin production. In type 2, yes. Maybe not enough. Okay. Uh, three. Is the patient insulin dependent for type 1? Yes, they are. Remember, there's no insulin production for type 2. No, not always. Number 4, will you see ketone production in type 1 diabetes? Absolutely, yes, you will see ketone production in type 2. No, you will not. Now, ketone production, what is it? What is a ketone? Why is it? What's going on? Do you guys know? Ketones are formed when the body starts to break down fat for energy. When there's not enough glucose, the body has to use something. It uses fat, and then ketones are a waste product of that. So they're very toxic to the body. You will see them in type 1. You should not see them in type 2. The treatment for type 1 diabetes is the letter MIA. M stands for modified diet. I stands for insulin. A stands for activity. Now, for type 2 diabetics, it's the letters M-O-A. M stands for modified diet. O stands for oral glycemic. A stands for activity. All right? Signs and symptoms at the bottom, part B is so simple. What are our three signs of diabetes? They are the three Ps, polyuria, polydipsia, and polyphagia. Polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia. You guys knew that, right? Look those words up if you don't know what they mean. Complication of diabetes. Let's talk about it. For, um, let's start by just asking, what is our normal blood glucose levels? Do you guys remember them from our labs? <laughs> 70 to 110, okay? So we're going to look at when the blood sugar is really high. Um, I'm Think of like 400, 900. I had a patient's blood sugar. It was 1,100, okay? So the blood sugar is really high. In type 1, that's called diabetic ketoacidosis. In type 2, that's called HHNK or hyperosmolar hyperglycemic non-ketotic syndrome, okay? So let's look at type 1. Um, now, the, the cause of diabetic ketoacidosis is simply not enough insulin. So if the patient doesn't have enough insulin, they will start to use what for energy? They'll start to use fat, right? The signs and symptoms of diabetic ketoacidosis are easy because you just think of the letters DKA. So D, you're going to have dehydration, okay? Dehydration. K, you're going to have ketones, ketones, and Cushmall's respirations. A, you're going to have acidosis, 
acidosis, and also anorexia. All right. Now, the treatment, the treatment for type 1 and type 2 is just the same. All right. What the treatment is, is IV fluids and regular insulin. IV fluids and regular insulin. IV fluids will treat the dehydration. Regular insulin will treat the hyperglycemia. Now, for type 2 diabetics, it's called HHNK when um, the blood sugar is high. And the cause is essentially dehydration. What does hyperosmolar mean? What do you guys think? It means dehydration. Yeah. So if you look at this name for type 2 diabetics, what you don't see is the word diabetes. Right? There's no diabetic here anywhere. So if there's no diabetic or no diabetes, what will your patient not be doing? Okay, what does diabetes mean? What did I tell you? It meant putting out a lot of urine. So your patient in HHNK will not be putting out a lot of urine. The signs of HHNK are the signs of dehydration. You remember dehydration, dry mucous membranes, poor urine output, patient complaining of thirst. You're going to have orthostatic hypotension and sinus tachycardia. All right. Um, now, the treatment you guys already know, IV fluids and regular insulin. See how easy that was? All right, that's how I want you guys to be studying. All right, and you can do it. Now, let's look at hypoglycemia. So low blood sugar, we usually start treating below 60. Now, um, for type 1 diabetes, let's look at it. The cause of the blood sugar dropping too low is too much insulin or or not enough food okay so your patient has given themselves way too much insulin and they haven't eaten enough the signs the signs of somebody with type 1 diabetes when they're hypoglycemic is the signs of somebody who is drunk all right so put drunk in that box and when somebody's drunk how do they act when they're intoxicated they're slurred speech they're stumbling unsteady gait they are combative they are emotional, okay? This is what you're going to see. The treatment is so simple. There's two ways to treat, and the treatment is the same for both, so you can write this in both boxes. Um, okay, if they're awake and if they're unconscious, that's those the two ways to treat. So if the patient is awake and their blood sugar is low, what do we want them to do? We want them to eat, eat something, drink some orange juice, um, eat a sandwich, all right, eat a piece of candy. Let's bring that blood sugar up. But if they're asleep or if they're unconscious and you can't get them up, you definitely don't want to be trying to feed them anything. You need to give them some IV dextrose, okay? There's some IV dextrose. Now, if I have some PNs that are taking this course, for you, you won't give them the IV dextrose. You're going to give them the, um, the glucagon, okay? And you can give that into the muscle. You can give it IM. All right. For type 2 diabetics, when the blood sugar goes down, the cause is either too much insulin or too much exercise. Exercise will actually lower your blood sugar, sugar levels. So that's why it's so beneficial for people in general, but um, in diabetics in particular. Um, so good point to know, right? The signs of hypoglycemia in type 2 diabetics are the signs of shock. So when somebody's in shock, how do they act? Well, their blood pressure drops, but their heart rate goes up, okay? Sinus tachycardia. 
you have that cold and clammy, need some candy. That's what they say for type 2 diabetics. Okay? The treatment you guys already know. Alright, then at the bottom is a lab test specifically for, um, for risk factors for type 2 diabetes. It is called a hemoglobin A1C hemoglobin A1C and what it does is it looks at um, the looks at long-term blood sugar control so it looks at uh, your blood sugar control over three months and you want it to be less than seven percent less than seven percent all right we're moving on moving on okay this section is going to be on the different types of insulin there are four types of insulin that I want you to know. Uh, you have rapid acting, regular, intermediate, and long acting. We're going to talk about the onset, peak, and duration. Now let's just get, the, get together about these definitions. Onset is when the medication starts working. Peak is when the medication is at its highest. Duration is the length of the medication when it's effective or in the body. The first class of medication is the rapid acting these are your logs, Novolog, Humalog, all right? Um, the onset, less than 15 minutes, so you want to make sure that you have food in front of your patient, okay, when you give this insulin. Peak is one hour, duration is three hours. Regular insulin is your short-acting insulin or your clear insulin. Remember, you always draw up regular insulin before intermediate, so um, clear before cloudy, okay? Um, another thing about the regular insulin is that this is the only insulin that can be given IV. So if your patient is on an insulin drip, you know it's regular insulin. Or if the doctor orders an insulin drip, you know to go get regular insulin. Now, the onset is one hour, the peak is two hours, and the duration is four hours. Intermediate insulin is your cloudy insulin. This is the second insulin that you draw up. The onset is four hours. The peak is 8 hours and the duration is 12 hours. And I'm only giving you one number to memorize because it's just simpler that way. And NCLEX is not going to give you a range. Like, they're not going to say uh, 4 to 8 hours, 8 to 12. They're going to give you scenarios. They're going to say, you, give your, you gave your patient regular insulin at 7 a.m. When would you expect for the next dose to be? So you think about the duration of regular insulin and then you'll pick the time the, the one time that they'll give you, they'll say noon, evening, supper time, okay? Long-acting insulin is your Lantus or your Glargine. Now, what's special about this insulin is what? Is that the onset is very slow, 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 okay? There is no peak. There's this, this is a peakless insulin, and the duration is 24 hours. Now, when do we typically give Lantus? In the morning or in the evening? We typically give it at night. All right, these are your subcutaneous injectable insulins. Moving on to the oral pills. Now, oral pills I have down here, I want to take note that glucophage or Vandia mean the same thing. Um, and Bietta actually is an injection. All right, it's an injection, but because it's for type 2 diabetics only, I put it down here. Now, the contraindications for these medications, you never give these, these um, oral pills with Coumadin, with birth control pills, or with steroids of any kind. Down at the bottom, what we have here is insulin and, insulin and diet. We tell the diabetics to make sure the majority of their calories come from carbohydrates. Carbohydrates 
they last longer in the system, making the blood glucose levels more stable. Now, insulin and exercise. Remember, what did I tell you exercise does to the blood sugar? It drops it. So the more exercise you do, the less insulin you need. Good points. You guys will have more um, studying to do for diabetes on your homework. And I will be looking forward to seeing what you guys come up with. Let's get into our endocrine review. And if you really want this review to be good, I would go ahead and look up these things before I actually give you the information. So go ahead and look up hyperthyroidism and hypothyroidism. Look at the signs and symptoms and also see if you can find the treatment. Um, and then come back. I'm going to get into it though. Before we begin talking about hyperthyroidism or hypothyroidism, let's think about the thyroid gland. What is it responsible for? Do you know? The thyroid gland is responsible for what? Your oxygen consumption, your metabolism, producing the thyroid hormones. And next to the thyroid gland is the parathyroid glands. Do you guys remember what they are responsible for? The parathyroid glands are responsible for your calcium and your phosphorus absorption. But think calcium for NCLEX. Hyperthyroidism. When you think about hyperthyroidism, everything goes up, right? So you have high vital signs, the patient's irritable, um, when you have diarrhea, you have the bulging eyes or the exothalamus, uh, the metabolism is really high, so the patient's really skinny, high energy, Alright, this is what you're going to see with hyperthyroidism. Now, let's talk about the treatment. Uh, there's two ways to treat it. I want you to think of the first one is by using radioactive iodine. That radioactive iodine is called propathyrouracil. Propathyrouracil. And people think of that as PTU. And another easy way to think of PTU meaning puts the thyroid under, or it actually shrinks the thyroid gland. And that PTU can be given PO or IV. Precautions. If you have a patient on a radioactive substance such as PTU, you need to use radioactive precautions. So that is a gown and gloves for the nurse. Okay. Remember that the body fluids, like the urine and the stool and the blood, are also going to be radioactive. So you never want to just directly touch them. You need to use the hazardous cleanup for all body fluids. You need to flush the toilet or tell the patient to flush the toilet three times after using it. No pregnant nurses to take care of this patient. No children visitors to, care for, to visit this patient as well. Okay, Those are your radioactive precautions. So that was our medical way of treating PTU. Our surgical treatment is to do a thyroidectomy. And that basically means just taking that thyroid gland out. All right. Now, you want to watch for, watch for thyroid storm. Have you guys ever heard of thyroid storm before? Mm. It is an exacerbated version of hyperthyroidism. So... In hyperthyroidism, things are high, but when it's thyroid storm, things, things are extremely high. Like, it's a medical emergency. Um, instead of the blood pressure being 120 over 90, it's like 200 over 120. Okay, so the temperature goes up as well. The temperature can be 103, 104, and when the brain is hot like that for a long time, the patient dies. You can have seizures, nausea and vomiting. These are things that are really um, critical for your patient, and you have to have to treat it right away. So what's the treatment? The treatment is, of course, beta blockers. 
Tylenol. Tylenol for that fever or acetophetamine is what they're going to say on NCLEX. Now, if the patient is nauseated and vomiting, but you have to give Tylenol, what is the best way to give it? Because you can't give it by mouth. How should you give it? Don't say IV. IV Tylenol is not the quickest way, okay? You have to run IV acetophetamine very slowly. So the best way to give it is going to be a Tylenol suppository, okay? Tylenol suppository. Also, calcium gluconate is going to be uh, the substance that will bind to the thyroid hormone, which will help your patient live. Turn the page over. We're going to look at the nursing care. And this is the nursing care post-thyroidectomy. What we have is... Uh, we always want to keep the neck in a neutral position, okay? So for NCLEX, I want you to know that position to be uh, semi-fowlers. At the bedside, you always want to have a tracheostomy kit because you just had surgery on the neck and you could easily lose the airway if your patients start hemorrhaging or anything. So we always have a tracheostomy kit and oxygen and suction at the bedside. Remember that when you've had surgery on the neck, the dressing is in the anterior, right? But if the patient is lying down, you always want to check for bloody drainage at the back of the neck because that drainage will pool down to the back of the neck. If the parathyroids were removed as, as, along with the thyroid gland, you want to check your patient for what kind of deficiency. If the parathyroids were taken out, what kind of deficiency might your patient have? they might have a calcium deficiency. So if you remember back to our electrolyte lecture, the signs of a low calcium were what? I'm not telling you. I want you guys to remember. After a thyroidectomy, is a hoarse voice normal? What are you gonna say? You're going to say no, okay? That may indicate laryngeal edema or damage. Also, if the patient is frequently swallowing, that may indicate a hemorrhage. Let's go back and let's look at hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism is really super, super easy because hypothyroidism is just the opposite of hyperthyroidism. So when you think of the signs and symptoms, everything will be down. So we have low vital signs, the patient's lethargic, the patient's weak, um, the patient has an intolerance to cold. Remember, hyperthyroidism had an intolerance to heat. These patients have intolerance to cold. They'll, their metabolism is low, so they're kind of heavy set. Okay, they'll have weight gain, they'll have edema. They may have the goiters, actually, because that thyroid hormone is trying to pump, 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 and it's not getting anywhere. So sometimes the neck swells and these patients have goiters. The treatment. The medical treatment is there. I have the two um, medications, levothyroid or Synthroid, um, and these will subsequently replace the thyroid hormone. So you want to make sure you give these on an empty stomach. Uh, typically, it's first, time, first thing in the morning or before meals. Watch for signs of hyperthyroidism because sometimes we can send our patient over to the other side by treating them. Easy, easy on the next page. Our nursing care, we just want to make sure that our patients are taking their medication every day. And we know that once a patient is on this sort of medication, they have to take it for the rest of their life, okay? So part B is talking about the adrenal disorders and it's looking at Addison's and Cushing's syndrome. So before, before you start with the alterations, you need to know what are the adrenal glands responsible for. Well, their adrenal glands are responsible, of course, for making adrenaline, but they also make uh, the steroids in our body like the natural cortisol. 
we see cortisol working in helping us fight inflammation, infection, allergic responses, okay? So when we look at the alterations, we're going to see uh, too much or too little of the cortisol. So the first one is Addison's disease. Um, and it says here, the adrenal glands help us to handle stress, okay? And I talked about what those stressors could be. Addison's disease is too little by the adrenal cortex, and that is the too little cortisol. If you looked up the signs and symptoms beforehand, you would see that people with Addison's disease are kind of like hypothyroidism. They're depressed, okay, uh, they're lethargic, I have here. They're unable to tolerate changes uh, hemodynamically. They go into shock very easily. Um, they move swings. I had a patient who had uh, Addison's disease and he would just faint at the littlest things. Like if he went to Taco Bell and said no tacos, no tomatoes on my tacos and he opened it up and saw tomatoes, he would faint. Or if he got scared if somebody slammed the door or something, he would faint. Addison's disease. They also have a bronze colored skin as well. The treatment is super simple. You need to replace the cortisol that's too low with a with a steroid. So that's a prednisone or a cortisone, some man-made steroid. Now when we come to Cushing syndrome, most of you guys know Cushing syndrome, that's too much by the adrenal cortex. And the signs of Cushing syndrome are very distinct. You have what? A moon face, truncal obesity, uh, buffalo hump, that's what they call it, uh, striae, which are the dark purple stretch marks. You have uh, skinny arms and legs, but like I said, the trunk will be obese. These patients are hyperglycemic, okay, but they have low potassium, all right, so they leak out potassium, so they're hypokalemic. These patients are also immunocompromised, so they are constantly at risk for getting infections. So if you have a question on NCLEX and you have all clean patients, meaning people with no diseases, your patient with Cushing syndrome might be the one that needs the private room. Therapeutic communication is so, so important when it comes to uh, giving really good nursing care. And so you will find therapeutic communication questions on NCLEX, particularly when it comes to psych. So let's go over the do's and the don'ts. The do's are really simple. You want to think SOLAR. SOLAR stands for S, sit in silence. O, observe with openness. L is lean forward and listen. A, be at eye level. So sit down when you're talking to your patient. R is relax. If you're Writing, if you're looking at your watch while your patient's talking, it's not very therapeutic, right? Things that we don't, don't, don't do. Give personal opinions. Even if the patient asks you, what should I do? If you were me, would you get chemotherapy? If you were me, would you get this leg amputated? Don't give your personal opinion. Tell your patient, talk it over with your doctor and your family and make the best decision for you. Because if you give your personal opinion, that's like taking the choice away from the patient. Because nine times out of 10, they're gonna say, well, she's a nurse, she knows best. Changing the subject, it's just rude, okay? It ignores the patient's feelings, don't do it. False reassurance. Arguing with the patient is so easy to do, you won't believe it, especially if they need a bath or they really need to take their medication, but don't ever pick it on NCLEX. On NCLEX, you want to choose these kind of statements. But the main point is never pick the why answer. Never ask the patient, why are you feeling like this? Or why do you believe that? Because it sounds confrontational. 
choose the open-ended questions, choose the answers that focus on feelings, and the answers that reflect, restate, or rephrase what the client is saying. Then you will definitely be able to answer any therapeutic communication question. Okay, let's get into some more therapeutic communications. The first thing that we see on this page are our digoxin parameters. And you guys have to have to know the heart rate when you're giving digoxin per age group. So the first age group that we see here is what? We have the newborns. And we know we hold that digoxin, we hold it, hold it, hold it, if the heart rate is less than 100. Next age group is 1 to 3 years old. You want to hold it if it's less than 90. 3 to 8 years old, hold the digoxin if the heart rate is less than 70. And then 8 to adult, the if the heart rate is less than 60. Okay? Let's move on and let's do these antidotes. See if you can fill them in before I tell you. Magnesium sulfate, what is the antidote? It is calcium glutinate. Tylenol is mucomist. Insulin is glucagon. Morphine, or any kind of narcotics, is going to be Narcan. Coumadin is vitamin K, and heparin is protamine sulfate. Needle information is so important. NCLEX may show you a picture, say you're given a sub-Q, intradermal, or IM injection. They want to know which layers of skin it goes through, what's the needle size, what's the needle gauge, etc., etc. So let's go over it. The sub-Q injection goes through the epidermis, dermis and into the fat okay the gauge is 25 the length is 5 eighths of an inch now this is the same the gauge and the length is the same for the intraderma as well the intraderma goes through the epidermis and into the dermis we know that the gauge is 25 and the length is 5 eighths of an inch the last one is intramuscular the IM injection goes into the the epidermis, the dermis, into the subcutaneous tissue, and into the muscle, okay? It's a good injection site because in the muscle there's less pain receptors, meaning less pain for your patient. The gauge is 21 and the length is 1 inch. Welcome awesome nurses to your psych overview for NCLEX. We're going to start by looking at the difference between depression and mania. And if you really want to help yourself, you will go ahead and look at these signs already before I start talking about them. So when we're going over them, it is truly a review. The signs for depression are all negative signs, meaning that they take away from a normal personality. So in depression, you have uh, crying, you have weight loss, you have not wanting to eat, your patient is lethargic, they don't want to get out of bed, they don't want to get dressed. All these signs are negative signs, right? Mania, on the other hand, are positive signs. So your patient is energetic, they're impulsive, they're pleasure-seeking, okay? They, they tend to be promiscuous, so they have a whole lot of sexual partners, they're seeking pleasure, they spend a lot of their money that they don't have. So you see the opposites of depression and mania. The similarities are mood swings, memory loss, and fatigue. And you can put these in both sections because they're the same. Fatigue, memory loss, mood swings. The treatment is also the same for depression and mania. You want to put these patients on a mood stabilizer such as lithium, such as lithium. Also, group counseling works well. And antipsychotics if needed. If your patient's having delusions, then you want to put them on an antipsychotic. Now, if a patient has depression and mania together, what is that called? What is it called? 
bipolar disorder okay bipolar disorder for both of these now I hope you guys did not say schizophrenia because that's completely different and we're going to talk about schizophrenia right now schizophrenics cannot tell the difference between what's real and what's unreal the disease is chronic and requires lifelong treatment now I listed here uh, five positive psychotic signs. So psychotic means out of touch with reality. These are all positive signs, which means they will add to the personality, add to the normal psyche of a, of a, a regular person, I want to say. So the first one is what? Delusions and the second one is hallucinations. What is the difference between delusions and hallucinations? Does anybody know out there? Does anybody know? Delusions are false thoughts in the mind. So there are false beliefs that the patient thinks are real. So they're in the mind. Hallucinations are false beliefs with a sensory component. So they're false beliefs of hearing, touching, tasting, smelling, feeling. Okay, you guys see the difference? Neologism, number three, is making up new words. Number four, echolalia. Echolalia is repeating the same thing over and over again. They're echoing. Number five is flight of idea, basically jumping from topic to topic to topic. All right, let's move on. Nursing care for your psych patients. This goes back to com um, therapeutic communication. Number one is always keep in mind experience to the client is real. Number two, acknowledge their feelings. Number three, present reality. Okay, so no. I understand that you see spiders on the wall, but I don't see spiders on the wall. That's presenting reality. Four, set boundaries. Five, avoid changing the subject. Our psych drugs are complicated, but the way that I'm gonna present them to you is very simple, okay? The first group is the benzodiazepines. These are really important to know because they help reduce anxiety. So they're also called anxiolytics. I have examples here for you. Forazepam, diazepam, all right, these Zepam drugs are benzodiazepines. Five points about benzodiazepines you want to know for NCLEX. Number one, these are for short-term use only because number two, they are very highly addictive. Number three, they are safer to use in the elderly than Haldol. Haldol. Haldol is a typical antipsychotic, which we'll talk about later. Number four, you need to monitor your clients with respiratory issues because this medication will depress respirations. And number five is really simple. Always want to check liver function because medications will affect the liver. Benzodiazepines can also be used as anticonvulsants, which means they stop seizures, sedatives, and muscle relaxants. Side effects. The side effects of uh, benzodiazepines are the side effects of most psych medicines and I have ABCDs because it's super easy to remember them that way. A stands for altered vital signs, meaning low blood pressure and low heart rate. B stands for blurry vision. C stands for constipation, constipation and confusion. D stands for dry mouth. S stands for sedation and S stands for stasis of urine or urinary retention. If your client overdoses on a benzodiazepine, give flumazenil. Okay, let's go into the next page.
Okay, now we're going to talk about typical and atypical psych drugs. And if you're in class, this is probably the part where you zone out because it becomes so overwhelming that you can't understand it. A lot of nurses working right now don't understand the difference between typical and atypical psych drugs. So let's just go over it together. We'll fill in the blanks here. I'm reading it directly off your paper. You come to uh, phenothiazine. The examples there are thorazine, compazine, promethazine, okay? The routes that you can give these drugs are PO, IV, and IM. Which route do you think lasts longest? The IM. The IM lasts longest. Phenothiazines are typical antipsychotics. Typical antipsychotics works best on the positive psychotic symptoms. You guys know positive psychotic symptoms because we talked about it. They add. They add to the reality of the person. Okay? Now, here's the trick here. Typical antipsychotics can also be called first generation. Okay, so you have two words. You can either be typical or first generation. Now, first generation basically means that when people started having psychiatric issues and medications first came on the scene, they were called first generation. Okay, and now as time has progressed, there's more and more psych drugs and they're second generation and third generation. But all phenothiazines or typical antipsychotics are considered the first group or the first generation. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, first generation can also have another name, which is neuroleptics. And neuroleptics is a description of what the patient will experience if they take this medication. All right. Now, um, oh, I forgot to go back and say that there's examples of other psych drugs that are considered first generation, and you have them here. And I want you to specifically note haloperidol or haldol as a first generation. Okay, so going back to neurolepsis, what is neurolepsis? Well, it is the altered motor skills, okay? So it is the decreased level of consciousness, the, the poor motor function of your patient. So essentially, it is that rocking back and forth, the tongue in and out, the protruding uh, mouth in and out. You know, this is what you see patients on these first generation or typical psych drugs have a hard time controlling their movements. Now, so the side effects are ABCDs, which you guys know, plus tardive dyskinesia. And tardive dyskinesia is just the general name of those uncontrolled movements. Our nursing assessment's really simple. We want to monitor for tardive dyskinesia. That's expected. Okay? But we also want to monitor the vital signs of these patients, particularly because if we start seeing vital sign changes, then we know that they're having an adverse reaction to these medications. Okay, And that's not good. The tardive dyskinesia, they keep taking it, but if they start having temp uh, temperature changes or blood pressure changes, they need to come off of the medication. Now, what drug can we give to lessen the side effects of the movements? We can give Cogentin. You guys know that this is a Parkinson's medication. If you think about what Parkinson's disease is, if you studied it in quick facts, then you know how it's going to help your patient. We have to tell our patient that they must continue to take their medications or their psychotic symptoms will return. Now, at the bottom of this is your medical emergency surrounding site, and it's called neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Okay, now, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, the signs are ABCDs plus tardive dyskinesia plus extreme vital signs. 
So when your patient has all three of these, it's a medical emergency. It's very dangerous. The blood pressure is ridiculously high. The temperature is 104. Um, they're, they're seizing. They're throwing up. They're, they're catatonic. Okay, I had a patient. I gave her Haldol. She was like 19 years old. She came in with schizophrenia. I gave her Haldol, IM, and within 10 minutes, we had neuroleptic malignant syndrome. So your priority action always is to control the temperature um, after the oxygen and airway are secure, you want to make sure that you control the temperature because the brain can only stay hot for so long. So um, you flush it, you flush the medications with IV fluids, you give the Tylenol suppository, okay, cooling blankets, beta blockers for blood pressure, oxygen, you know, for oxygen, for air. Atypical antipsychotics are also known as second generation, second generation. Examples here are the ones that you see on television right now. Okay, so what do we have? We have Risperidol, Seroquel, Zyprexa. These are the ones. All right, most of these drugs end in pine, but some of them don't. Atypical antipsychotics still have your ABCDs. They still have ABCDs. But what's the big idea? What's the big plus about the second generation or atypical? Well, atypical antipsychotics have less of the tardive dyskinesia or the extra pyramidal symptoms. So you have less of the uncontrolled movements if you're on a Seroquel, a Zyprexa. But, but for me, this is a concern because these second generation or atypical will cause metabolic changes in your patient, which are worse for me. Like number one, they can cause type two diabetes, all right? Number two, they can cause weight gain, weight gain. And number three, they can cause dyslipidemia or they can cause your cholesterol to be really high, which puts you at risk for a heart attack or stroke. Now, these are considerations and these are teaching points um, for the RNs, all right? Now, a granulocytosis is another huge concern of these medications. And a granulocytosis is when the blood, the white blood cells drop really, really low, like dangerously low. Your patient will come in complaining of symptoms of the flu. They'll, uh, they'll have chills, they'll have body aches, all right, what else do I have? Fever, uh, sore throat, but it's a granulocytosis, okay? And when that happens, the patient needs to be hospitalized immediately, all right? And they have to be taken off of this medication. Whatever medication that they're on, they have to stop the medication immediately. What else do I have? Um, stop the medication, close monitoring, uh, a broad-spectrum antibiotic like vancomycin, all right, for this. Okay, let's move on to our antidepressants. The first one is the MAOI that stands for monamine oxidase inhibitors. And what that does is it, it helps you to break down epinephrine, dopamine, and serotonin more slowly. So those things keep you happy. So the longer you can have those flowing around in your system, the happier you will be. They um, are not very popular because there are a lot of food and interactions with these MAOIs. There are three that you need to know. An easy way to remember them are MAR, NAR, and PAR, which stands for MAR plan, NAR dill, or PAR nate. Okay, some of you might know that as Panama if you mix them up. Our side effects are ABCDs. You guys know that. Dietary restrictions we're going to talk about on the next page because you need to avoid tyramine in your diet, okay? 
the teaching. The teaching is that MAOIs take a long time to start working. So they may take four to six weeks to work. Another teaching point is you never want to take these with SSRIs. You're either on one or the other, okay? Let's turn over the page and let's talk about the things you cannot eat when you have an MAOI on board. The meats. No, no, no organ meats or preserved meats. Grains. No grains with any yeast. Anything that rises, bread, muffins, can't have it, okay? Vegetables. Vegetables and fruits are the same. The acronym is no BAR, B-A-R. That stands for bananas, avocados, and raisins. Dairy. No cheese at all except for cottage cheese and no yogurt. Sweets and oils. No coffee, no tea, no chocolate. And your condiments. No soy sauce. Can't have it. So sorry. Our next Next antidepressant is the SSRIs, that is Selective Serotonin Reuptake Inhibitor, and it focuses solely on keeping serotonin in the body a lot longer. That's how it works. Expected side effects are ABCDs plus headache and sexual dysfunction. There are four here that I wanted to go over um, just so you guys know some of the teaching about it. The first one is Prozac. Prozac causes suicidal ideation in children, okay? You also want to give it before 2 p.m. You want to give it earlier in the day because it will cause insomnia, okay? Which means your patient will be up all night um, if you give it later on in the day. The next one that I have here is Celexa. Celexa is very... It's very sedating, so you don't want to drive and you don't want to um, operate heavy machinery or drink alcohol after you've taken this one. After that is Zoloft. Okay, Zoloft is your SSRI that can be given in the evening, but you cannot give it with Antabuse. Antabuse is the drug that um, helps you to abstain from alcohol. The last one is Effexor. Effexor interacts with Tagamet and NSAIDs and lithium, okay? Contraindications is so super easy. Never give an SSRI with a what? A MAOI. Your client teaching is St. John's Ward and SSRIs also are contraindicated because they both work on serotonin. So if you're taking St. John's Ward, which was a herbal medication, and you're taking an SSRI, you can have serotonin overload or serotonin syndrome, which is not great. All SSRIs cause sad head. Sad head stands for sweating, apprehensive, dizziness, and headache. Super easy. So now you guys know the, drug, um, the drugs that you're expected to know psychiatric-wise for NCLEX. Study them. Take them in. It's super simple, you guys. Don't make it more complicated than it has to be. It is time for your EKG overview. And before we get into this, I just want everybody just to clear your minds, okay? Take a deep breath in and relax, okay? Because this is one of the topics that I get a lot of emails. People are overly apprehensive about the rhythm strips, the treatments, etc., etc., and I'm going to present this information to you very simply and very calmly, okay? Because we're going to get through it. So let's just get the information down so that you guys will be able to put it to use and put it to practice on your quiz questions and your homework. 
okay? The first thing that we want to start with is the rhythm, normal sinus rhythm. This will be our basis to compare everything else to. And by starting with normal sinus rhythm, you will have a good foundation on what it is that you're looking for. Now, there are only really five rhythm strips that Inclex School asked you about. So I'm going to go over the top five and then, um, and then we'll go from there, okay? So let's look at normal sinus rhythm. Normal heartbeat is what? For an adult, 60 to 100 beats per minute, okay? So I want you to put that on the line there. Now we're going to go over the parameters for normal sinus rhythm. Um, I'm not going to go over the ones for the other ones. I'm going to put them there for you already. But what is the rate? 60 to 100. What is the rhythm? The rhythm is regular, okay? So that means that there is, and I'm just looking at it so I make sure that I'm staying on the right page. So that means that there's a P wave for every QRS complex. Now, Remar Review is not getting into uh, what do P waves look like, what do QRS complexes look like. This is a review of things that you guys already know. So if you find that you don't know what I'm talking about, get a book, okay? And, and and learn this information, okay? But for the purposes of this NCLEX review, we're moving on. Is there a P wave before each QRS complex? Yes, that's what makes the rhythm regular. Number four says, are the P waves upright and similar? Yes, they are, they look alike, okay? We're doing good, normal sinus rhythm. Number five, what is the length of the PR interval? Well, the length of the PR interval is a normal PR interval which is 0 0.12 to um, 0 0.20 seconds. What is the length of the QRS complexes? Well, a normal length, which would be 0 0.06 to 0 0.12 seconds. Okay, very good. What are our rules? When I talk about rules, I'm thinking of treatments, okay? What are our rules for somebody with normal sinus rhythm? Well, they're fine, right? No treatment needed for this patient. Do not give any meds for somebody who has normal sinus rhythm. Document the findings as normal. Let's move on. Ah, atrial flutter. Now, looking back at your rhythm strips for normal sinus rhythm and looking at atrial flutter, what do you see? Oh, on this line, the very first thing that I see is a sawtooth pattern. So that means that the P waves look like saws. Okay, they're very sharp at the top. Um, what is the rate I have here for you? Um, the rates. Now, what you notice is that the atrial and atrial flutter will beat faster than the ventricular rate. So um, the atrial rate is represented by the P waves. The ventricular rate is represented by the QRS complex. So if we look at the atrial flutter, we see that there looks like there's two P waves for every QRS complex. The atrial rate is sometimes double the ventricular rate. Um, let's see, all the other boxes are filled in there. These patients, take note, these patients tend to suffer from atrial flutter. Okay, you have all the diseases here. But our nursing interventions are very important. How do we treat atrial flutter? Okay, we cardiovert. Cardioversion is the treatment for atrial flutter. You can also slow the ventricular weight by giving medications such as verapamil, digitalis, or beta blockers. All right, um, patients with atrial flutter tend to be at risk for blood clots. Can you think why? 
it's kind of the same um, with atrial fibrillation too. With atrial flutter and atrial fibrillation, the heart is not pumping. Like the heart pumps like this, pump, 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 pump. But with atrial flutter and atrial flip, the heart is just kind of like quivering. Okay, so what's happening is blood is not really moving through the body. It's just kind of like sitting there, just like quivering back and forth. So when blood sits or is stagnant, it tends to clot. So that's why patients with atrial flutter have to be put on heparin, okay? And sometimes you can put aspirin because aspirin works as, um, it helps to, to, to prevent the platelets from coagulating. But know that that's the reason why because the, t the blood is not moving the body like it should be. Oh, ventricular tachycardia is so easy to spot. Like, if you get this on NCLEX, if you get this rhythm strip, you should know BTAC right away. Because what? It's just wide QRS complexes. You can't even see a P wave. And this ventricular tachycardia is super easy because all of the QRS complexes look exactly alike. So it's super easy. Um, you have all the information here about the rate. Remember that there's no, you can't even see the atrial rate. You can't even see the PRS, um, the, I'm sorry, the P waves, but the rhythm is regular, okay? Um, absent for number three, absent for number four, um, because there's no P waves. And yes, the QRS complexes are wide and bizarre, okay? Greater than uh, 0.10 seconds or 0.12 seconds. When it comes to VTAC, you want to ask if it is stable or unstable because that will determine the treatment, okay? Um, these patients are patients who have ventricular tachycardia. You have the list there, okay? Remember that. The treatment is to defibrillate the patient, defibrillation. And then, of course, before you do this defibrillation, if there is no... Because the thing that makes VTAC... Um, very dangerous is there's typically no blood pressure and no tissue perfusion. So insist there's nothing going on with your patient. So you want to start CPR right away if it's unstable and you can't get a pulse. Never pick epinephrine. Never pick epinephrine because it stimulates the ventricles and that's the opposite effect of what you want. If your patient has stable VTAC, stable VTAC means that they have a blood um, they have a blood pressure, they're not complaining of any kind of shortness of breath or chest pain and they're just sitting there. Well, for nurses, what we need to do is assess the patient and document and report the findings to the doctor. Okay, don't try to give any medicines, don't try to do anything. Okay, we're playing it safe for NCLEX because we're new nurses with no experience. The next one is really, really easy to identify because what? It's just a straight line. This is called asystole. Asystole means that there is no electrical activity, no pulse, all right, it's just a straight line. The treatment, the treatment are two medications. You can use epinephrine or atropine, and epinephrine will jumpstart the heart, okay? That's what we need. We need a beat. We need it to keep going. Sometimes the monitor can say asystole, but you're looking at your patient, and they're watching TV, eating a sandwich, and you think, what is going on? You know, are these zombies? What? No. Check for lead placement. Uh, because they think, oh, I, I must do something. If this is as a systole, I need to check the blood pressure. I need to give a medication. I need to start IV fluids. No. Check your lead placement. Okay? The last one is premature ventricular contractions or PVCs. 
And what you notice here is that you have a normal ECG and then all of a sudden you have this weird looking beep and then it goes back to normal. Okay, so what it is, it's, a, it's like a wide QRS complex. Now, the thing about PVCs is that they can actually happen in healthy people. Um, you only want to start treating uh, PVCs if there is more than six in a row or six in one minute, okay? Because then you need to figure out what's going on. But for PVCs, normally, if it, you have one and then it goes away and your patient's fine, okay, there's really no treatment needed. So you have a question here. A client is having frequent PVCs. A nurse would place priority on assessment of which of the following things. And I hope you guys picked A because we need to know what their blood pressure is like, what their tissue perfusion is like. That information will determine the treatment, okay, that needs to be done or when we call the doctor, all right? And then patients have PVCs who have infections, alcohol abuse, caffeine. You just went jogging, you know, and you're excited, you can have a PVC. Now, look how simple that was. All right, you guys have a good skeleton on EKGs. Now, I will have more questions for you to do um, to help you critically think. Because I don't want you to be afraid. Like, this is the least that you should be afraid of when you get them on NCLEX, all right? Um, because they're going to be very straightforward. They're going to be ECGs for nurses who don't have any experience. Okay? Don't even think about sitting for NCLEX until you have this isolation stuff down. It is super important to know it, to be able to demonstrate that you're a safe nurse and you're not going to mix clean patients with dirty patients. So let's start by knowing the difference between the four different types of isolation. Now, the first one that you come to is universal precautions. Now, universal or standard precautions means that we do these things no matter what. There are three boxes here. What are the three things that we do no matter who our patient is, what they have? The first one that we do is we wash our hands. How long do we wash our hands for? Do you guys know? We wash our hands for 15 to 20 seconds. Okay. The second thing that we do is we wear gloves. We wear gloves whenever we come in contact with somebody's body fluids, all right, blood, urine, stool, whatever. Also, we wear gloves when we're cleaning or disinfecting surfaces. The third thing that we do is we put disposable items in the room. Nobody should be sharing toothbrushes, combs, blood pressure cuffs, Okay, um, we have sharps containers in every room. We put disposable items in the room to help spread, help prevent the spread of disease. Now, contact precautions. The only difference between universal and contact precautions is that now with contact precautions, you wear a gown. So put that in the box, you're wearing a gown. Our contact diseases are MRSA, BRE, herpes, C. difficile, Roseola and Shingella or Shingellosis. Okay, if you guys think about Shingellosis or it could be called Shingella, it causes really bad diarrhea. All right, any bacteria or virus that causes diarrhea will be considered contact precautions. Okay, now another question is if your patient is under contact precautions, should you leave the door open or closed? Which one? Go ahead and leave the door open. There's no reason for them to be closed in, okay? All right, moving on to droplet precautions. 
With droplet precautions, you do everything you do under universal, you do everything you do under contact, but with droplet, we are now adding a mask, okay? Second thing is we're adding, we're adding goggles or a face shield, okay? Particularly when providing patient care, when you're suctioning a patient, when you're changing a wound, you need to have your eyes covered and your face covered. The third thing to remember is that droplet precautions are communicable within how many feet? You guys know how many feet? It is three feet, okay? Three feet. Your droplet diseases are pneumonia, meningitis, influenza, rubella. Remember, if your patient has to leave the room, you need to put a mask on them. Now, if your patient is inside the room, can the door be open or should it be closed? What do you think? the door can be open. Very good. Let's move on. Airborne precaution. You do everything under universal contact droplet, but with airborne, you are adding a what? A special respirator mask, okay? You need to add a special respirator mask, such as an N95, and you should get fitted for this respirator mask once a year. Second one is eye and face shield at all times. You have to put on the whole guard, okay? The, the third thing is a private room with negative airflow. Private room with negative airflow. If you don't know what negative airflow is, I want you guys to look it up. You will see it again, either on your homework or on a quiz question. Your airborne diseases are measles, TB, varicella, and shingles. Remember, if your patient is on airborne precautions, that door needs to be closed all the time. So, I hope you guys know the difference between clean patients and dirty patients. Clean patients are people who come in with no diseases at all, such as a broken leg, okay, or pancreatitis. Dirty patients have diseases, so you never want to cohort or put in the same room clean and dirty patients. You want to cohort people with the same kind of diseases, right? So you put a pneumonia in with the flu, because they're both what? Okay, they're both droplet precautions. You put MRSA in with herpes because they're both contact precautions, okay? Um, the airborne precautions, only one person in that room. Turn the page over. I want you guys to critically think with me now here. Okay, so on this next page, you have a list of diseases, and I want us to walk through which precaution is going to be the best one for it. Now, when you're picking out precautions for diseases, it is very important that you think about how this disease is transmitted from a patient to a nurse. That is your concern, okay? So let's go through them. The first one is AIDS or HIV. How is AIDS or HIV transmitted? From blood, okay? If I was a I was a nurse, I could only get it from my patient if I get in contact with their blood because I'm not going to be having sex with the patient, okay, right? So if it's contacted through blood, I'm protecting myself from everybody's blood no matter what, so I use standard precautions, okay? Let's do the next one, a vaginal yeast infection. If a patient has a vaginal yeast infection, can they give it to me? No, all right, so that's standard or universal precautions. The next one is diarrhea. If the patient has diarrhea, can they give it to me? No. Okay, this is just diarrhea. Like if they ate a bad hamburger or got a hold of, I don't know, something bad. It doesn't say it's diarrhea from a certain bacteria. Just plain diarrhea. Okay, um, so they can't give it to me. It's universal precautions. I'm protecting myself from their diarrhea, their bodily fluids. Okay. The next one is mononucleosis or Epstein-Barr. Have you guys ever heard of mono before? 
it is sometimes called the kissing disease the kissing disease so it is transmitted through the exchange of saliva saliva is a bodily fluid I'm protecting myself from everybody's bodily fluids which precaution do I use I use standard universal precautions right Okay. West Nile virus is transmitted by mosquitoes, right? It's transmitted by mosquitoes. So if a patient has West Nile virus, can they give it to me? No, they can't give it to me because it's transmitted by mosquitoes. So I use standard precautions. I'm, I'm cool. I'm not going to get it. All right. So this is how I want you guys to think of it. All right. The next one, hepatitis C. How is that transmitted from patient to nurse? Through the blood. Okay. Um, because we won't be having sex and we won't be sharing needles with our patients. So it is standard precautions. MRSA. I told you guys. And if you guys didn't know what MRSA was, I wanted you to look it up. It's a staph infection. This is transmitted skin to skin, which I can get from my patient if I'm not careful. So I need to use contact precautions. The next one is C. difficile, which is um, a... a, a, a um, <laughs> sorry, I mean, <laughs> this is how I get sometimes. It is a contagious, very contagious, and it causes diarrhea, really bad diarrhea. So I told you guys, if something causes GI problems, diarrhea, um, it is a contact precaution, okay? Rotavirus also will give you really bad diarrhea, contact precaution. Shingalosis, shingalosis, again, is contact precaution. I really want you guys to get this in your head. Head lice. If a patient has head lice, can they give it to me? For sure, yeah. So you want to use contact precautions, and of course, you want to put on um, a hair mask if you're having a patient with head lice, but that's still considered contact precautions. Epiglottitis is actually uh, caused by a strain of the flu virus, so it will be the same precaution as the flu. Do you guys remember what that was? Droplet precautions, so epiglottitis, this is in quick facts, know this, okay? Epiglottitis is a droplet, influenza is droplet, rubella is a form of the measles, the German measles, it's the lesser measles, that is also droplet. Whooping cough, what do you guys think that is? If somebody coughs on you, you can get it. That's going to be droplet. You have to be within three feet. Now, don't say airborne because you have to be in a closer proximity. Like, if I was in a football stadium and somebody had whooping, whooping cough on one side of the field and I was on the other side, I couldn't get it. All right? So, droplet precaution. Meningitis, droplet as well. It can be transmitted through the sputum or the saliva. Their cella is the chicken pox. That's going to be airborne precaution for sure. The incubation period is up to three weeks. Okay, so know that. Monkey pox. What do you guys think? You guys probably never heard of monkey pox, right? So if you had to critically think and you had to be very safe, which precaution would you put your patient under? Yeah, airborne. You don't know monkey pox, but you know chicken pox, and it kind of sounds the same, so be safe. Airborne. And then rubiola is another form of the measles, which is more serious. It's airborne precautions. Okay? All right. Uh, let's move on to some questions. I want you to do these questions, and then we're going to go over the answers. All right? So do them, and then go over the answers with me. Scenario number one, uh, let's see. A nurse manager reports for duty and has to evaluate each nurse's assignment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, she should intervene when she sees what situation. I hope you guys pick B the nurse taking the blood pressure of somebody with AIDS wearing a mask and gloves because you use standard universal precautions. We don't ever want to make our patients feel like um, they are 
We don't even want to make them feel bad because they have AIDS, okay? The second scenario, you got a seven-year-old. He has what they're sell out, what goes outside the room. I guys, I hope you guys picked B, goggles, mask, gown, private room, and gloves. If you look at all the other ones, they are definitely missing something. Let me just look. D is missing. D is in dog is missing a gown. C is in cat is missing a mask. A is in apple is missing. What are you missing here? You are missing goggles or a respirator mask, so that's not going to be good, okay? Uh, third scenario, super easy, anthrax. Anthrax is actually universal or standard precautions. You typically can only get anthrax through animals. I know you guys may have been thinking of the bioterroristic anthrax, but it doesn't say bioterroristic anthrax. It just says regular anthrax. There is a distinction. If it did say bioterroristic anthrax, you would use the airborne precautions okay um and then the last one rotavirus super easy contact precautions you guys have finished isolation you have lots of homework on this you know we will go over them together there all right hope you guys have a better understanding of what it is you're looking for when you do these questions all right people let's talk about some accident prevention this is a lot of education a lot we're coming into a lot of education right here the top accidents for NCLEX are falls medication overdoses okay or accidents and also fires when you have a fire super easy always use race okay race stands for rescue alarm contain extinguish let's talk some seizures here in the next box okay for seizures what do we know about seizures okay we know we put the patient in the lateral position i also want you guys to note the time and duration of every seizure that your patient has we never restrain them never restrain them never put anything in the mouth okay always have oxygen and suction at the bedside okay you can pad the side rails Put the bed in the lowest position. Okay, these are things that we teach or we delegate um, to our aides. Okay, now error prevention for NCLEX. How do we prevent error? There are um, there are three major topics when it comes to error prevention. The first one is restraining. Okay, now let's just go over the fundamentals of restraints so you guys don't have to read a whole bunch of stuff about it. Restraints can be one of two things. They can be physical restraints or chemical restraints. RNs, only RNs can put on a restraint without a doctor's order at first. Okay? They have to get a doctor's order within one hour of putting on that restraint. Okay, so if your patient is getting out, out of hand, slap a restraint on them, but you better be calling the doctor to get an order for that restraint very quickly. A restraint order needs to be re renewed every 24 hours by the physician. The order is actually called a prescription. It's called a prescription but it, because it has to have certain things. So you have one, two, three, four. These are the things that a restraint prescription must have. Number one is a type of restraint. Two, it has to have the reason for the restraint. restraint. Three, it has to have the location. And four, it has to have the duration of that restraint. The second way to prevent error is to chart. Remember, we always want to chart immediately after we do a procedure, if possible, the, because you have less, um, less incidents of you forgetting to chart something or putting all the details down. Also, when it comes to charting, verbal orders are very important to know. 
We always want to write down and read back every verbal order, and only RNs can take verbal orders on NCLEX. LPNs should not be taking verbal orders. Now, when it comes to charting, you also need to chart any medication that you waste, okay, like a narcotic or heparin or insulin, um, and it takes two RNs to waste medication. The third thing is incident reportings. How do we handle incident reportings? NCLEX wants you to know that incident reports never go into the patient's chart, okay? Never put in into the patient's chart. But one needs to be filled out if a patient, anybody that comes into the hospital and you witness something happening to them, okay, if a visitor, a family member, a volunteer, a patient, a police officer, Incident reports need to be filled out on all these people. Do not think that they're just limited to your patients because they're not. Your priority as a nurse, if you witness an incident, is to assess that person, okay? See if they're hurt, okay? You're gonna provide care to decrease any injuries. Then you file an incident report and you remember to include their name and address, okay? Remember I said that, guys, I'm winking because it's very important. Case management. Case management is a RN educational task, okay? Because RNs can definitely be case managers. And it makes sense because we're on the forefront. We're right there with our patients. We know what they need more than anyone else. Nurses are also very great at anticipating the needs of people. Now I have here, case management is not managed care. That's a completely different system. If you don't know what managed care is, guess what you better do? You better look it up, that's right. Now, there's a collaboration when it comes to case management. It's nurses working with occupational therapy, speech therapy, physical therapy, doctors, uh, respiratory therapy as a team, okay? Nurses are always the team managers, all right? So you have a question here. Um, I want you guys to just take a look at it quickly and let's go over the answer. A should be your answer. You want to teach the patient how to take pancreatic enzymes with meals, okay? This is a direct nursing task. All the other ones, um, referring the client to a dietitian, those are, uh, those are social work, um, advising the client to follow up with home health services. That's not, I mean, that's something that a nurse could do, but it doesn't, uh, directly affect the patient immediately. You don't know if they're going to follow up with the patient. And then educating the patient on how to apply for disability. Uh, who knows how to do that? Like, I certainly don't know how to do that as a nurse. So stay within your scope of, of practice when you're doing um, the nursing role, when you're thinking about what nurses do when a patient has a whole bunch of situational conditions. Okay? Let's move on. Ah, oh, legal ego. Legal ego is very important because I myself am a huge advocate of nurses not getting sued, of nurses not getting fired and losing their license. And the best way you cannot lose your license is to stay within your scope of practice. So let's just go over some legal guidelines. Now, the first thing that you come up to is advanced directives. What are advanced directives? They are legal documents that allow your patient to make decisions in advance. They are not required by law. There are two types of advanced directives that I want you guys to know. They are the durable power of attorney and the living will. Let's look at the durable power of attorney. A durable power of attorney is someone who has the ability to make decisions medically 
for your patient. So the patient grants someone this privilege. Now there are a couple things about um, the durable power of attorney. The first one is they have to be 18 years or older. Okay, no children, DPAs. The second one, the durable power of attorney can accept as well as refuse treatments, any treatments. Okay. The third thing is the durable power of attorney only goes into effect when your patient is incapacitated or unable to make decisions for themselves. So if the patient is just sitting there in the room or if the patient leaves the room momentarily, their durable power of attorney can't come in there running the show, okay? That's not how it works, all right? Now, on the other hand, the living will, there is the client doesn't name anyone, okay, on the living will. It's the client actually making the decisions beforehand for their medical care. Now, this living will, the medical living will is not like who gets my cat or who gets my sofa and my dining room set. It is, yes, I want to be put on a ventilator. No, I don't want resuscitative care. So it's containing to life-sustaining measures, all right? Know your client's DNR status. Okay, because you don't want to do CPR on someone who's a DNR. DNR stands for what? What do you guys think? Do not resuscitate, right? Because if you put your hands on somebody that is a DNR trying to bring them back, you can get charged with battery. Informed consent is another big one that you need to know about. Um, informed consent is basically the patient understanding what's going to happen to them during a diagnostic procedure. If you think about all those diagnostic procedures we talked about, MRI, CT, X-ray, you want to have an informed consent. Informed consent also specifically will um, will include the advantages and disadvantages of a procedure. There are times when you need a written consent and there are times when you don't need a written consent. Now you always should get a verbal consent but sometimes things need the extra step so of writing it down. So the written consent, you need written consent to do all diagnostic tests like I said. Okay, There is not one that you can do without a written consent. The second one, you always need a written consent to give blood. If a doctor orders for me to do some blood, give some blood, uh, and I don't have a consent, guess who's not getting blood? That patient, all right? Because you can get in huge trouble if somebody says, what, you're giving me blood? I had no idea, all right? The third is for anesthesia. If a patient's getting any kind of um, general anesthesia, okay, any kind of spinal epidurals, you need a written consent to do that. Things you can do without a written consent. You can do your basic nursing care. So IVs, NG tubes, Foley catheters, those are expected treatments when you come into the hospital. You don't need a written consent. Also, in an emergency situation, do not interfere with care in order to get a consent. All right. So if a patient is coming in the emergency room and they have a severe trauma to the head and they need a shunt put in their brain, they're getting the shunt. Okay, without the written consent. Who gets the consent? Is it the RNs? Get, do the RNs get the consent? Do the aides get the consent? Secretaries, who gets it? The doctor's doing the procedure. The doctor doing the procedure is the only one who can explain thoroughly the advantages and disadvantages of that procedure, that test, whatever. Okay, so it's the ordering doctor. Do not put your license in jeopardy by trying to do a doctor a favor and getting a consent. Let's get this delegation topic under control right now. 
You have to know who is able to do what, who you can delegate to as a nurse, who you cannot delegate to. So let's get into it. On your delegation page, you have three boxes. They are the RN box, the PN box, the aid box. I'm going to tell you what to put in each of those boxes. These are tasks that that person or that license can do. So the registered nurse, you give them all of the patients that are new, any W, anybody that comes in with a new complaint or um, a new admission, all right? These are your new patients, these are your RN patients. Teaching, initial and discharging, the RN does that. Assess, plan, interpret, evaluate, restrain, you guys know the RNs can only restrain, and triage, RNs do the triaging. Moving on to the PN box. The PNs do the routine treatments or procedures. They care for the patients who have predictable and expected outcomes. So you'll see tasks such as sterile dressing changes, tube feeding, applying hot and cold therapy, placing Foley catheters or indwelling catheters. They can do follow-up teaching they can collect specimens. They can also take measurements for canes, walkers, crutches, okay? Remember for NCLEX, no IV medication, no blood administration, and no care plans for your practical or licensed vocational nurses. The aides on NCLEX, the aides cannot do any treatments, they cannot do any procedures, okay, at all. They do your activities of daily living, such as feeding, dressing, combing the hair, painting the fingernails, okay? AIDS can also, um, they can chart the vital signs that they take. AIDS can take blood pressures, they can take temperatures, and they can write those things down. Okay? Your AIDS can also transport your stable patients. If your patient is stable and they have to go to x-ray or physical therapy, the AIDS can take them there. AIDS also do your post-mortem care. So if your patient passes away, your aide can prepare them to go to the morgue. There's two questions at the bottom of that page. Can LPNs delegate tasks to aides? What do you guys say? Yes, 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 they can. Can aides delegate tasks to other aides? No, no delegation. All right, let's move on. You guys got questions on the next page. You will do them, and then we will go over them together. Okay, these questions are pretty straightforward, uh, but I want to look at them. Number one, who would be the most appropriate to feed an elderly client who can become combative? Oh, he's confused too. Alright, so when we're doing these kind of questions for delegation, the very first thing you need to do is what? Identify the task. Identify what NCLEX is saying has to get done. That's going to be a good indication of who should do it. So the first task here for A is to feed somebody. Who feeds patients? That's the aid, right? So you should pick number three. Now look at the patient. Of course you want to look at the patient. This patient right now is just confused and elderly. So this is not unstable in any way. It says he can become combative, but it doesn't say that he is combative right now, right? So that would be the aid. The next scenario, the task is what? Ambulating down the hall, okay, for the first time. So this is a new, this is a new thing. So all your new conditions go to your RNs, all right? So that's number one. The third scenario, you got somebody who is terminally ill, only expected to live a few hours, but the doctor orders comfort care only. 
So that means very little medications, no CPR or nothing like that. And the client wants a bath. Who gives the baths? Okay. The aides or people without licenses. So that's going to be your senior nursing student, number two, who should do that. Um, and then D says the, oh, tasks for the nurse's aide. What can they do? This is a select all that apply. You look at select all that apply questions. Is true or false? So bathe the client, true. Provide assistance with ambulation, true. Chart and calculate intake for shift, not true because aides don't calculate anything. They can chart, but they can't calculate. Obtain sputum specimens, false. Assist with feeding, true. Okay. All right. Last scenario here, um, which I got to add to my page. Uh, there's a cold situation and you need to know who should get the cold cart. Okay, that's going to be a nurse's aide. Okay, if you guys think about it, if a patient is critically ill, you want everybody with the license to stay with the patient. You send the people out the room who don't have the license for blankets, suction, tubing, tubing, um, cold carts. Okay, you don't need a license to get oxygen. You don't need a license, well, to get the tubing for oxygen. You don't need a license to get the cold cart. Okay, so the aides, the secretaries, whoever go gets the things, the nurses and doctors stay with the patient. All right. All right. So you guys will see more delegation on your homework. Take the homework serious. Okay. And you guys need to make sure that you're doing it because it helps to enforce this content. All right. Let's move on. Prioritization, prioritization, prioritization. Let's just get into it. You have a question at the top of this page. I want you guys to look it over, figure it out. I'm going to give you the answer right now. You got four patients. You're working in the emergency department. Who should you see first? Okay. Um, I hope you guys pick number four. I hope you guys pick number four. You got an 89 years old female with poor gag reflex. This is your priority. Okay, let's just fill in the boxes so maybe you guys can understand where I'm coming from with this. All right, so do not let NCLEX distract you with age or gender. Okay, when you're doing these questions, you don't care how old the person is. All right, they could be a newborn, they could be 200 years old. You don't care if they're male or female. Okay, the first box I want you to put here, only think about what is happening right now. What is going on with the patient? What are we looking for? Okay, we are looking for the patient who is going to die first. Who's the most critical patient? Who has a change in their condition? What's going on with these patients? All right, so let's go over it. Um, number one, we have a hundred years old female. We don't care if she's a hundred. We don't care that she's female. She has a temperature of 102 and diarrhea. Okay, how long is it going to take her to die? It's going to take her a while. All right, two. We got 55 years old, don't care, male, don't care, severe abdominal pain, okay, that's a big deal, from a kidney stone. How long is it going to take him to die from this kidney stone? Okay, a long time. I don't want you guys to be reading into the questions. They're telling you right here what the abdominal pain is for. Okay, two years old, don't care, female, with a heat rash, complaining of itching. Man, it's going to take this person a really long time to die. You got an 89 years old female, don't care, don't care with a poor gag reflex okay poor gag reflex makes me think of some kind of neurological condition having a hard time swallowing guess what she might have a hard time breathing pretty quickly um so her condition 
is going to be the worst out of all of them. And we don't really know why she has a poor gag reflex. What's going on with her? Is her airway blocked? What's we, we don't we have no idea. This is our priority patient. Okay. Reverse priority means who you should see last. Who is the least critical of all these patients? So I want you guys to quickly look over it. Who do you guys think is your last priority? Yeah, it's number three, the two-year-old female. She has a heat rash and she's itching, okay? But for our least priority, the rules are, number one, the least amount of assessment. Who needs the least amount of assessment, okay? Number two, whose condition is plainly stated? So plainly stated means they have this because of this, all right? And we see that. We see that here. She has a heat rash and she's complaining of itching. And then three, the least critical, okay? So those are your three tips to remember least priority. Okay, so I gave you guys some structures and some way to look at it. Let's do some questions, all right? So on the next page, yeah, so on the next page, you have questions. Do them, hit pause, do them, and then come back. Okay, these questions were really tough, but I love them, I love them, because I know they're gonna get you to think. So number one here, what's going on? Again, we're at the emergency department and four patients come, who should we see first? That order should be B is in boy first, okay? The nine-year-old female, we don't really care about that, but she has the nuchal rigidity, petechiae, and fever. These are signs of meningitis. So B is in boy, then go to D is in dog. You got somebody with a bandage head wound. What is underneath that bandage? How bad is the wound? We need to know. So he's next, okay? A, after that. Okay, moderate abdominal pain, occasional vomiting, and then C, twisted ankle, but they have a pulse, no bruising. Okay, um, next question. This is a priority, but it's not priority with patients, it's priority action. What did I just tell you guys about our accident prevention? You want to document the procedure in a nursing note. B, that is your priority action after you do it. Um, let me see the other answers. A... You don't have an order to do a sterile urine specimen, okay? C, vital signs do not tell you whether an indwelling catheter was tolerated well, okay? And then D, delegate to unlicensed personnel to collect the amount of urine. That's not your priority action, okay? Moving on, number three, again, uh, priority patients. These patients are... Um, the, this is a harder question because of those quadrant areas, and if you don't know what organs are in every quadrant, you can't answer this. All right, so that's a studying tip for you guys. All right, their priority should be D as in dog. You got somebody with a pulsating abdominal mass, pressure-like pain in the abdomen. What do you think that sounds like? To me, that sounds like an abdominal aneurysm. And if that aneurysm explodes, the patient is gone. There's nothing you can do. This is your priority patient, okay? C. Person with leper upper quadrant pain, vomiting small amounts of bile. What's in the leper left upper quadrant? What organs are there? What do we have? Okay, the stomach, the pancreas, the left kidney, okay, parts of the liver. Um, and then they're vomiting bile. This is very bad. This is it's really bad, okay? Uh, B, B is next, B is in boy. Low grade fever, left lower quadrant tenderness. Nausea. What's in the left lower quadrant mostly? That's your colon. Mostly that's there. So um, 
this is your next priority and then A, you got somebody, seems like to me they might have some kind of food poisoning, maybe the flu, college student, intermittent cramps, okay? This is how I want you to be breaking down these questions, all right? Let's move on, it was more. Oh, okay. Patient with immune thrombocytopenic purpurea. Did you guys look that up? When you're doing these questions, another thing is, I know some of you guys want to say, oh, see how much I know um, by myself, but I don't want you to do it like that because this is the time that you study and you look up things that you don't know, okay? Because you might see it again on NCLEX. And if you just brush over it, nine times out of 10, you're never going to come back to that information, especially when you're doing questions. You'll just say, oh, I'll do more questions. No, stop look this information up. So if you don't know what that is, look it up. Anyways, they got an appendectomy. Uh, the patient is in recovery. And what is the priority action after checking the airway and the vital signs? I hope, I hope you guys pick C. Check that bandage for excessive drainage. They just had surgery. That's a priority. The next question, um, the next two questions are actually based off of Quick Facts 2.0. And everybody should have Quick Facts 2.0. That is a supplement to this review. There is no better book, in my opinion, there is no better NCLEX book to give you the hardcore facts, okay, in a simplified form. So anyways, five, a nurse is preparing to administer blood to a client. She verifies the order, the blood type. What should the nurse have to, to administer the blood? I hope you guys pick B, Micron Mesh Filter Set. Okay, you always use filtered tubing. A, non-filtered tubing will never do. The 18-gauge needle, that's perfect, but the non-filtered tubing, no. And C, micro-drip. Never use micro-drip, okay, because it chops up the blood. And then D is the clot prevention. That sounds great, but it's an unfiltered administration set, so we can't use it. Uh, B is the answer. And then number six, you got somebody here, they're three years old. Uh, the temperature is 102. They have sore throat and drooling saliva. What does that sound like to you? It's very, it's very, it sticks out to me like crazy. Okay. This sounds like epiglottitis. Epiglottitis. They're drooling saliva. They have a sore throat and a fever. The child is leaning forward and does not want to lie down. That's another distinct characteristic of epiglottitis. When you can't breathe, you don't want to lie down flat. Um... What, uh, which of the following should the nurse do next? C, C, get a trait kit ready, okay? Because that's, in, that's the direction that this child is going to. D, if you guys pick D and you didn't know about epiglottitis because you didn't study it in Quick Facts, you know if you're suspected to have epiglottitis, you never want to put anything in the throat, okay? You never want to assess the throat, have them open it, put a tongue depressor down there. You don't want to do that, okay? All right, you guys will see these questions again, all right, on, on, the, on our mandatory quizzes. Let's move on. So we have come down to the final, final stages of the online academy, and we're finishing up our lecture series. Didn't we have a good time? Didn't we have fun learning together? I think that we did. And I wanted to take a couple minutes to just talk about some mastery tips for the NCLEX and the way that I want you guys to think now that you have the information and you feel confident enough to sit down and actually take and pass this test. So clear your minds because this is the confidence here. These are the things that you need to be saying to yourself.
every day until you take NCLEX. Number one, speak only positive things to yourself, okay? I will pass this test. I have studied all I can. I know this information. I can prove that I'm a safe nurse. You know, there's something to be said when you go into the test feeling like, gosh, I, I just didn't study like I should have, or I know I'm not going to pass this test. You're already defeated. You're already failing if you go into there with a negative attitude. And that negative self-talk will produce what it is you've been speaking, okay? So we want to be positive. We want to think positive to ourselves. Number two, I want you guys to practice computerized questions. This test is on a computer. So studying in books is fine and writing down things, but you have to be comfortable um, in front of a computer taking exams. Most This won't be a problem for most people, but um, if it is a problem for you, try to get as much exposure to the computer as you can. Three, this is just another reminder. Never, never think about what you're seeing in a hospital, what you see at your job. Remember for NCLEX, it is a perfect world. You always have everything you need, okay? Four, pick the textbook answer, okay? Don't get crazy. We wanna pick exactly what you would do by the book. This is the next one. I made this program to be very simple. I want you guys to remember our broad concepts. Don't get boggled down by the little, little fine details, the minutiae, okay? Make sure you know general large principles like delegation, infection control, prioritization, okay? This is what's going to pass you on NCLEX. Next, you won't know everything. Give yourself permission not to know everything, okay? Nobody goes in there getting every question right. Actually, the test is designed statistically so you get one question right, one question wrong. One question right, one question wrong. The test is designed to figure out where it is your weaknesses are. So that's what it's going to attack. All right? So don't worry about it. If you don't know a question, say, hey, I didn't know it. Move on. Common sense. Common sense is always your plan A. What's the safest thing for you to do? What's the most reasonable thing for you to do? All right? Don't get crazy with your answers. Also, my final tip. Please do not wait too long after you finish this course to take the NCLEX exam. You should be taking it within the within three months, really, okay? Don't send me an email that I finished it now and I waited a year to take NCLEX because you want to take it while this stuff is fresh in your mind so that you can recall quickly, you can answer those questions, you can pass NCLEX, all right? So many people have passed NCLEX. You can do it too. I know people who have passed just with the workbook and quick facts by itself. No practice exams, no homework, no emailing me questions, no conference calls. So you guys truly have all of my information. I've told you everything that I know, everything that I use to pass NCLEX. I can't wait for you guys to sit and take it. I can't wait for you to pass it and send me an email or send me a text and say, Regina, I did it with the Remar Review products. Thank you so, so much. Because I would say to you guys, no, thank you. Thank you for taking this review with me. Thank you for giving me your feedback and investing so much time into my products because you believe in them. You believe that they will help you. And I look forward to hearing from you guys and to just uh, you telling other people and we just all celebrating your success because you truly worked so hard for it. See you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and leave a rating. We wish you all the best in the coming examination. See you next time.